Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Is there any good news to talk about? Is there is everything a bummer? This is going to be our new cold open. There's not there's nothing good to talk about, is there? There's nothing good to talk about. No. <laughs> it's the Balance of Power Roundtable. I'm Matt Robeson. That was Alicia Preston, our conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant. I am your host, although we're without Paul Hodes today. And when we're without Paul Hodes, we like to call this show We're Imbalanced. Although I think you and I balance each other out reasonably mm. well. We come from different areas of the political spectrum. What would you say your color in the political rainbow is? You're a you're a chartreuse. Fuchsia? I don't know. <laughs> I'm black, basically. We came up with a list of things that we have to talk about. They're all bad. <laughs> the end of the writer's strike is good news. We'll save that. That's dessert. We'll talk about the writer's strike at the end. <laughs> Let's start with the government shutdown, which, look, we're going to release this on Wednesday, September 27th. The government shuts down midnight Saturday. It's going to shut down. The government is going to shut down. Matt Gates, who is apparently the new czar of America, he's in charge now. He wields the power. Kevin McCarthy says, mother, may I? Can I please fund the government? And Matt Gates says, no. So, Alicia, we're going to shut down the government, right? I think it's probably going to happen. On Matt Gates, my favorite Matt Gates news this week, which that's not a sentence I say very often. My <laughs> no one is, has ever said that sentence. Including Matt Gates, is Cassidy Hutchinson releases her tell-all book and Matt Gates' responses, I dated her once and she's, yeah, I have higher standards than him. She actually said that. And I'm like, you go, Cassidy. She's, no, we never dated. I had higher standards. I have higher standards. And wow. I'm just like, that. you're a sitting congressman, Matt Gates, and your response to her book, which is pretty critical of Trump and others, is I dated her once. No, bro, there's no chance. Oh there's gosh. no chance. This is, no chance. I guess what I don't understand about Republicans losing their minds about John Fetterman wanting to wear cargo shorts into the U.S. Senate is, aren't we lowering our expectations of our leaders in other ways that are far more profound than the sartorial choices of John Fetterman? I'm with you. There was a great ed that basically said, John Fetterman should wear a suit and Republicans should put a sock in it. I, I guess I agree with that. Like, I would prefer that Senator Fetterman wear a suit. But what the hell? Like, these well, people are I think members of Congress. I think it's bigger. And I don't poo-poo the John Fetterman situation. And self-plug, Seacoast Online, you can find a column I wrote this week about it wasn't just John Fetterman. It was about what you're talking about. We have lowered our standards because we've lowered our expectations. We're okay with Lauren Boebert getting felt up in a theater in front of children. We're okay with Jim Jordan screaming at Merrick Garland. And not wearing, by the way, he's way too hip to ever wear a suit jacket, even while sitting as chair of one of the most important bodies in our government. And John Fetterman should have to wear a suit, right? And, and we just have lowered our standards all around, and it all matters and it all counts. And reality is, if you look at our disrespect or the disrespect that our elected officials have for the institutions they represent, it's why they're not functioning. It's why Jim Jordan screaming at Merrick Garland in a fact-finding hearing didn't find any facts because he didn't want to hear what Merrick Garland had to say in response. He wanted to showboat. He wanted to make news. He wanted to be cool in his jacketless self. 
because they can't get things done because there is no respect for the institutions they represent. To them, it's also a performative sideshow. Of course, I always super appreciate whenever you're throwing a little shade at your own fellow party members. And I know that when I say, hey, these are your own fellow party, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be twisting a knife on you. I don't. I continue. I'm trying to woo you, trying to woo you to to some other party. Have you tried on a, a Democrat lately? Anyway, I don't believe but, in your policies. See, this uh, is the thing. And this is what drives me crazy about the Republican you're, you're politically nonsense. Yes. I'm politically homeless because I believe in Republican policies. I believe in fiscal conservatism. I believe in live and let live. Believe in if what you're doing doesn't your harm me, it's that. not my business. That's that a libertarian the, thing. That's a true but, but libertarian. But maybe, but it's also what the tenets of the Republican Party were founded on. And now it's all cult of personality and it's all anger and it's all hate and it's all nonsense. And I just can't take it anymore. And John Fetterman, put on a damn suit. It won't kill you. Well, if you, thing, if you respect though. the people you represent, you'll go put a damn suit on. Yeah, but that's the thing, though, is that I, I will let this. I know that there is a healthy strain of the Republican Party that is infused with libertarianism where it really is live and let live Republicans. Actually, I, I ran a campaign against a congressional candidate, a Republican, who said, I'm a live and let live Republican. That really did used to be a thing. And you come out of that tradition. It's a New England Republican thing. And it is real. But I got to say, you're in a coalition with the rest of a party that really likes to tell people how to live their lives in private and is very sanctimonious about it. And that's what was super hypocritical about the Jim Jordan scolding of Merrick Garland. There was a great video that we put up on the Blue Amp channel about this, where we just clipped Eric Swalwell going to town. It's got, it's a must watch. You just go into town on Jim Jordan. It's bro. What are you talking about respect for law? You are almost 500 days into ignoring the congressional subpoena, okay? I'm not a um, huge fan of, Swal fan of Swalwell, but I was watching that and I was like, okay, that's funny. And Jim Jordan's well, walking out. And look, I'll bring us back to the government shutdown. It is mm -hmm. a group of politicians who think that this is a game to be played for donations that you can get by appearances on Fox News where you're trying to outmaga each other. And they're right about that. That's the game they're playing. But for the rest of us, this is playing with our lives and our livelihoods. This is playing with the US economy. Like they're playing a game. This is very real. This is not a game to us. There are 4 million Americans whose paychecks are, are about to disappear if there's a government shutdown, including members of our military. The Republicans say that what they really care about is border enforcement. And they point to, look, we, we have record numbers of apprehensions at the border. Here's a piece of politics I've never understood. I've been in politics for 20 years, 20 years, Alicia. I've never understood. When border apprehensions are up, isn't that a sign that, that border enforcement is working to some extent? But anyway, they point to record apprehensions. I keep pointing that out to like the MAGA Republicans on socials. I keep like, taking crazy pills. Oh no, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. So there's, I'm in New Hampshire and there is a former Republican nominee for Congress of all things, dear Lord. And she keeps posting like over the, so about a week or two ago over the Canadian border into New Hampshire, a dude was arrested with two others who had drugs. And she's like, this is the border security in Biden's America. And I'm like, oh, where we catch them coming over the border? Yes, right. What are you trying to make? I don't understand. Yes, I'm so if confused. you catch criminals. It's a good thing. Yeah, so I, I 
And I think the border's a hot mess. I think the whole situation's a mess. But yes, I agree with you. These MAGA people are out there being like, look at all these arrests. And I'm sitting here going, yeah. yeah. Aren't you in favor of that? What? So what That's would you happen? So this is the point, is that it's totally incoherent. There's no longer a Incoherence. Policy. And when I hear you say, I believe in the Republican policy platform, what I'm hearing you say is, I believe in a Republican policy platform that used to exist for a certain strain of the Republican Party. That's what you're in favor of. That makes sense. And while I'm not down with all of it, you are intellectually coherent. You are at least consistent. You believe in a set of principles. These people are the big Lebowski nihilists. They believe in nothing. And so the reason ostensibly- Whatever he says, they're like the bride in Coming to America who tells Eddie Murphy, who sells Prince, tells Prince Akeem, what do you like? Whatever, Whatever you, you like. like. Exactly. That's <laughs> what do you like, Matt Gaines? But Whatever then he makes her bark likes. like a dog. I've never understood that part. Okay, that was uncool, but it, it, it made a good point. Anyway, point being, these folks don't believe in anything. So ostensibly, the reason they want to shut down the government is they say, we will not provide funding for anything in the government unless you shut the border entirely. Shut the border. Against international law, by the way, you can't do that. And they don't really want that and their corporate benefactors don't want that because dirty little secret, we actually do want immigrants coming to the, you, you can't entirely shut the border. You, you can't have zero immigrants. And they believe that deep down. It's all performative, right? There's not a serious element to this they're playing with actual serious lives and it's just it's pretty reprehensible and this is what's going to happen this is what's going to happen and what i fear and for people who are listening to this we're going to put out a show in the next day or two i'm right after we do this show i'm recording an interview with some pollsters who just did some really fascinating focus groups with regular americans about their views about the shutdown and what you hear from people is it devolves into it's just a plague on both their houses spare me the details mm -hmm. just don't let this bad thing happen to us which i don't blame regular americans who are not political junkies for having that reaction they it's not their job to care but they are the stewards of the government in a democracy in theory and it's not just both houses it's not just all the people doing it i have to say the republicans in the senate are behaving totally responsibly they have passed a continuing resolution to fund the government 77 senators voted for that we're talking about a solid majority of the u.s senate republicans are behaving responsibly there there is a faction that that just to bring this full circle matt gates is now in charge of the republican party in the u.s house there's no other way to read this and they are going to take all of us down with them and that's and matt gates shouldn't be in charge of what a dog is having for dinner but i want to back up briefly on this immigration thing and and i know this channel is not exactly where republicans come to listen but if there are any listening what i have a few i get some of our trolling comments suggest to me that we we do have them that there might be some let's take a break we'll be right back Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to the Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of the Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. So this immigration issue, this border issue, 
we have to have a secure border. We have to have immigration laws. What has come out of the last five years, and yes, it is directly related to Donald Trump, is there is a small sector of the Republican Party that absolutely hates immigrants. They right. look at them as dirty and rapists and killers as Donald Trump. Yes, I believe the president of the United States said that about Mexican immigrants. And he once said, and my husband gets the biggest kick out of this because my husband's Greek and family of immigrants. And why do we get everyone from the shithole countries? And Chris always goes, because you think someone from Sweden needs to move to America? Why do we get them? Because it's people looking for a better life. And it dumbfounds me because I say, with the exception of Native Americans, with the exception of Indians, that is the only ethnic American there is. Everybody else that's complaining about the immigrants coming in is not an ethnic American. There is no such thing with the exception of Native Americans. And so people are coming from Honduras and Guatemala and Mexico and places for a better life. And yet we suddenly decided to hate them because they're not ethnic Americans. Neither are any one of you complaining about them. Neither am I. And it's just this incredible ignorance born on hate that the previous president capitalized on. And people are I, perpetuating it. And I would add to that the idea that we could have had a rational policy, a rational approach and a humane approach on immigration. We could have had it 10 years ago. There was momentum. There was a deal on the table. John McCain, Marco Rubio. What happened? The insane right wing of the Republican Party scotched it. They killed it. And Marco Rubio backpedal faster than his legs could carry him, faster than he could chug a bottle of water. He ran backwards away from his own deal. And there, there are rational solutions here that don't involve putting up barbed wire on the Rio Grande. And we could have them. I've done, it's back in the great ideas feed, but we've done plenty of shows where we lay out, here are the deals that could be had on immigration. It gets back to my core point, which is that there is no longer a coherent policy agenda. There is nothing that Republicans want to do. There's nothing that they want to accomplish. The, it's a continual perpetual motion machine for more outrage, more anger, more fundraising, more Fox News appearances, and around the wheel they go. And one of the reasons that you and I wrote a Newsweek article together is that I actually share your belief that it's healthy for America to have a conservative party that presents policy alternatives, that let's that presents a counterweight lest liberal policy preferences grow a little bit out of hand my party can go overboard we can from time to time we need not just a counterweight but we need to reflect there are americans who have genuine conservative convictions and if they don't feel that some of their views are reflected in what we do as a country then they begin to lose a stake in the country. They begin to lose a stake in the government. And that's extraordinarily unhealthy. So there needs to be a conservative political party, and it needs to be coherent and constructive. We do not have that today. And on that no. note, let's talk about the Republican presidential debate that's happening tonight. By the time people hear this, honestly, it may have already happened. Let me turn the, the topic of our joint article around on you. What we laid out in that article was the Republican Party has one last chance to save itself. And the way to do it, and we don't expect the contenders for the presidential nomination. That's the wrong word. They're not really contenders. The people who are ostensibly running for president. We understand that they lack 
the spine and the political foresight and acumen to stand up and attack Donald Trump. But we need the rest of the Republican Party to do it. That was our case. But that was now three or four weeks ago. I think we've gone past that. The clock is ticking. We're down to a few months left to go before we're on primary season. So I guess my question to you is, do we need to see this start to happen tonight? Because I'll do one more thing in setup before we get into this. The last debate, if a debate happens and it doesn't move the polling and it doesn't move any of the candidates, did it matter? Did it happen? No, no one gained anything out of the last debate. The chances are dwindling. This is, in my mind, it. So what are you looking for? You're an ant, you're a not Trump, you're an anti-Trump Republican. What needs to happen tonight? Do these guys need to stand up tonight and no later and finally go after Trump? No, I don't think they do and I don't think they should. I think anyone watching tonight's debate that is literally an undecided voter, and I am one of them, is looking for the person who can offer me something that I want to see. What do I want to see? I want to see what you can do. I want to see what you can do to stand up to Russia and China. And are you going to protect Taiwan? And are you going to perpetuate uh, our efforts in Ukraine? Are you going to do something to lower gas prices? Are you going to do something that can help inflation without necessarily making mortgage rates unattainable for the average American? I want to see what you're going to do about crime in cities and what you can do. I want to see what you can do to affect change for people like me who think the country's not headed in the right direction. And you don't need to talk about Donald Trump. He's not there. If you are running against him, regardless if you're Vivek Ramaswamy, who is just the sycophant for him, if you are running for president right now, you're running because you think you could do a better job than Donald Trump. I already know that. So stop talking about him. I don't care. I want to know what you will do if you are elected president and what needs to happen is someone has to shine. Now, there has been some movement, although it came a little later than that debate in New Hampshire, for instance. By the way, national polling is completely irrelevant. We don't vote that way. We don't vote that way in a primary. We don't vote that way in a general election. I find it all nonsense. Nikki Haley has moved into in polling, which I still question, but has moved into number two spot. Ron Santos down to number five in New Hampshire. There has been movement. She's running a strong campaign. She's here quite a bit. She's got great ads running and she's talking about her accomplishments and her vision of the future. She has a really good opportunity to break away tonight. And I'm of the belief I'm not, I'll take any one of them if they can rise to the top and not be Donald Trump, because that's what we need. We need someone to break away, others to start falling by the wayside so that there can be a consolidation of interest in the candidate that is not Donald Trump. I can understand where you're coming from on this is what you want as a voter. You're, you are the target voter, right? You're in an early primary state. You're in New Hampshire. You are an up for grabs Republican primary voter. And so what you want, you're genuinely coming to this to evaluate candidates and you're looking for who can offer me something like what you were just saying a moment ago, like my vision of here is a traditional Republican policy platform that comes out of the mold that I am used to and that I define myself around. Okay, fair enough. I just think that you are a unicorn, Alicia. I think you're, because ultimately I don't see a pathway even if there's attrition, even if Doug Burgum falls by the wayside and I don't know, like Mike Pence falls off the back and et cetera, even if there's consolidation, none of it matters unless we can deal with the elephant not in the room, Donald Trump. There's, you have to actually beat him. Now, what you lay out is a scenario where maybe if Nikki Haley can continue to rise a little bit, rise a little bit, And it becomes, this is the scenario they're all hoping for, is that it comes down to a one-on-one and it's Trump versus 
Haley, Trump versus Tim Scott, whatever it is, that maybe then they can get there by going all positive. But Trump's lead, even in the early state polls, remains substantial. It remains enormous. And I just don't see a pathway there unless they fundamentally beat him. At some point, they have to start enunciating this. And the problem they still face is, I just don't think there's enough runway to get there if you're, let's say, Nikki Haley between now and late January. There's just not enough opportunities to generate that kind of momentum and make up that kind of a gap. In the early states, there is if other candidates start falling off. And that's a question whose egos will allow them to not run. Look, Tim Scott, I think he's fantastic. He doesn't have a chance in this path. Mike Pence, I am a huge fan. I, I still cherish the fact that I got to have a cup of chowder with him a few weeks ago or months ago now. He's a great man. But he's not going to win. There is no path to victory. Doug Burgum, no path to victory. You've got to start looking at who's got a path to victory. And if you believe, if you really believe for the in the good of this country, Donald Trump cannot be president again. And therefore, you should do what's right if you do not have a chance. DeSantis should stay in it. Haley should stay in it. I'm not sure about Chris Christie. The others have to start. Vivek Ramaswamy is not going anywhere. And gosh, I wish he would. But for the good of the country, let's consolidate because consistently in the early states, Trump is running less than 50 percent. If we have a head to head, look, just New Hampshire, if someone can beat Trump in New Hampshire, I'm going to say Nikki Haley just because she's running second right now. If Nikki Haley consolidates support behind her and beats Trump in New Hampshire, guess what happens? That is a rocket. That is all these people in other early states who say, wait a minute, we don't have to support Trump. It could, you and I discussed a little bit about getting permission in our column. It gives permission to not have to support him. He is not the foregone conclusion, but someone's got to break. And I think tonight can tell us if there is anybody who is possibly willing to do that or able to do that. And if there's anybody else who's willing to step aside to allow it to happen. But we need both uh, things. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Let's talk about the aspect that you just brought up, which is polling. There was a lot of focus over the weekend over the national polls that came out, one showing, it was NBC, showing a tied race nationally between Trump and Biden. The other, the C Washington Post poll, got more attention, especially on the artist formerly known as Twitter, because it showed Trump up by nine points. Now, let's be clear about one thing. There are so many caveats here. First of all, polling this far out, is not predictive. I, I know you will read this and, and hear it in other places, so I'll just underscore it. There has been a ton of research on this. Polling is not actually all that predictive, anything earlier than three months out from an election, especially when you're doing polls of all adults or all registered voters, which is the case. Those are the two samples that you saw in this Washington Post poll. It's not reflective of anything in particular. And the, the Washington Post write-up even noted something that I've talked about a lot when we address polling on this show before, which is polling is really bad. It offers binary choices or multiple choice, three or four choices to voters on really complex, nuanced questions. And it does so in language that makes sense to political professionals, but doesn't necessarily match the language that regular voters use internally and what they hear and what they're trying to say back to pollsters. So when you ask a matchup question like the Washington Post ABC poll did, people might be saying, I want to send a message about how unsatisfied I am right now, and I'm going to downgrade 
my stance on Biden. I'm going to say Trump right now. This is literally something that the pollster wrote up. So I think it, it is true that poll is a massive outlier. I think it's true that poll can't be taken at, at face value. Of course, the MAGA people lost their minds because they're like, see, we get one good poll that shows something good for us and you're dismissing it. We, we should dismiss it. It's a nonsense it, it's, poll. It was it's, absolute it's nonsense. nonsense. But the fact remains that if there is a meta message from all of this, it's that I'm, I'm going to say two things. On the prior topic, I'm going to say Nikki Haley gained a little bit in New Hampshire, a little bit less so in Iowa after the first debate. But that just underscores my point that if you keep gaining these little tiny increments in those states, it would take you about two or three years to make up the gap on Trump. So you're not going to get there via not taking Well, don't forget approach. the consolidation message. He's under 50 percent. That's that is true. And the people that don't want to vote for him. So if you have one or two other candidates, then they can actually win. And on these national polls and oh, my gosh, my X feed was so full of ridiculousness. From the I, I refuse. Crowd. I refuse. It's Twitter. It's Twitter. OK, we'll just go with Twitter. The poll is absolute garbage. Number one, it's a national poll, which like we don't vote that way. So they're completely irrelevant. Number two, there is absolutely no way that nine percent more of this country wants Donald Trump in office than Joe Biden. There's absolutely no way. And one of the factors that is hard for pollsters to take into account, so I'm not mad at them. Think of who wants to take that poll right now. Who's answering these questions? The cultists who want to scream from the rooftops that they worship Donald Trump. That's who's taking the polls. I get called every other day for a poll. I've taken one. And by the way, to your point about pollster questions, I've written, I've done this, and I had to one. I was one of the long ones, one of the 10-minute comprehensive ones I took about a week ago. And he asked me a question. I said, can you read that again? He read it again. I said, I don't understand the question. And I like to think I know a little bit about this stuff. And if I don't understand the question when it said to me twice, how is somebody who doesn't do it for a living going to understand the question? That's that gets to that gets to the thing I've been screaming from the rooftops for a couple of years now. I wrote a whole article about this on Raw Story two years ago that if, if you look at and you and I have both been inside poll construction before mm -hmm. and we have these debates within consultant teams where we say, should we word it this way? Should we word it this way? And look, polling professionals know their job. I'm not downgrading their expertise. But at the same time, we are still stuck in a situation where we ask questions that maybe there's no other way to ask them. But what regular people who are not steeped in the news here is very different. Just again, I invite people to listen to the next show we're putting in this feed on these focus groups. Focus groups are really interesting because they give you a, in a very different way than political junkies do. And so anyway, I'm 100% with you. I just think that one thing I take away is that the 2024 election is going to be between Biden and Trump. And it is going to be close. And it is fundamentally unknowable how it's going to come out. Democrats are telling themselves a comforting story. And you just told a version of it, which is Trump is too damaged. He can't win. And I can tell this story and I believe it. I believe it, which is Trump lost by 7 million votes and he has not gained any new votes no, in the he's last He's done nothing to earn years. one more vote. And yet you and I both appreciate the fact that these things can be very random and they're very subject to all kinds of small effects. Because the reality is that Trump actually only lost by 40,000 votes distributed among Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin, and very small effects 
in those states could have changed the outcome. Power outages in Maricopa County in Arizona that affected polling locations in a heavy, heavily Democratic area, that could have swung the result in Arizona. Late-breaking news, a health scare for Joe Biden in a year could happen. All of these random things, we are a razor's edge away. We are this close. And I don't believe that the polling at this stage is predictive. I don't think that it is particularly insightful. I don't think that we're learning a lot from it. But what we know is that it is very likely to be very close. And that's just too close for comfort. I, I'm not sure the potential Trump second term, but I don't think I'm as concerned as you seem to be. Here, here's one factor, and this is anecdotal, obviously. There is not one Democrat in the United States of America that is going to vote for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Not one. I, I highly doubt there is one Democrat who's going to vote for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. There is, however, quite a few Republicans who will vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. And again, that may be anecdotal, but that's a significant factor when we're talking about a tight race. You only need 3% of Republicans to, in certain, in particular states, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, to Michigan, to say, I'd rather have Joe Biden than the destruction of democracy. I, I'm with you. And yet, I think we can all agree it's too close for comfort. And there are too many random factors. Again, Donald Trump, go back and look at both what the fundamentals and the polling were telling us at this same stage four years ago. Go back and look even in January and in February at what the fundamentals of the polling were telling us about Donald Trump's positioning. He had a very strong chance of being reelected in 2020. And he basically was not because of the unforeseen event of, of the pandemic. That's fundamentally why we didn't have a Trump second term and why we still have an, an America. And the thing about unpredictable events is that they're unpredictable and we cannot foresee what exogenous factors might shake things up in the next year. I think we should be more nervous than we currently all. The takeaway for me about the end of the writer's strike is that there's going to be less content and we were going we are going to have a consolidation no matter what, because during the peak of the pandemic, people were home, they were hungry for content, and the streamers and the studios that started streamers, they were going with the mindset, is the Uber mindset, which is we just need to capture market share. We just need subscribers. We don't care about profits. And in fact, the biggest streamers collectively have lost $20 billion since according to the Wall Street Journal. And so it's an unsustainable business model, no matter what. Now they have a deal where the payouts to writers are rightfully going to be more lucrative for writers, smaller, bigger cut of the pie for writers, which is good. There's also still an actor strike to resolve, probably a bigger cut of the pie going to actors. What that means is you can't just put out 600 scripted shows, which is, I think, essentially what was going on the last few years per year. It's just too much content. So there's going to be a consolidation. I think that's probably- And a lot of it was garbage. There's been a lot of garbage produced in the last few years because they yeah. are, to your point, just trying to burn out content, get more, get more content out there. And a lot of it's just not worth watching. Yeah. And so I'm- I, look, I'm, I think that there is a serious point here, which is there's a business story here, and we've seen this kind of business story before where there's a new sector and there's a kind of a gold rush in for just grab territory, and now there's a rationalization process going through. I, I think that's interesting. I think the bigger story that I connected to is 
the UAW strike. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of disruption, a lot of economic disruption to set business models that have been powering our economy for a long time. And that's really what these strikes are about, is new technology in the case of the streaming industry and Hollywood and the writers and the actors, and new technology in the case of the auto industry and EVs. And I think there's been a lot of kind of facile political analysis about, oh, this is so rough for Democrats, like their EV and climate goals are at odd with their support for labor. I, I think the Biden going there when he's literally trying to shut them all down was a bit ironic. But the other thing is, look, I'm not going to pretend I know what they make or what they should make. But as an American sitting here with inflation, and I think when and union comes out and says, I want a 40% pay increase in the next four years. You've got every single regular struggling American going, you're going to increase my cost of a car that I can barely afford to begin with, let alone the gas that's going in it, because you want a 40% pay increase over four years. It's unrealistic. I disagree. I think that over the last 40 years, the median real income of Americans has not shifted. And they're being squeezed by massively increasing costs on the fundamentals of what we pay for health, education, housing. And the, the middle class squeeze is very real. So when yes. you talk about Americans suffering, the, the short term effect of the last year and a half of inflation is major. It, it's real. I agree with you, especially when it comes to eggs. But the long term eggs, eggs have come down. The long term effect of it, it is hard to make it as a middle-class American these days. That's very real. And I think you're great. Factor... And that's why when you have middle-class Americans going, you're going to make cars unattainable for me because you want a 40% pay increase in four years. That is unrealistic to most middle Americans. But these are the middle-class Americans who are being squeezed. And I think what you're seeing is in multiple industries now, industries having to come to grips with the fact that the workers who, who are powering the industries are getting squeezed and they cannot continue to make it. Again, the middle class gets squeezed because someone thinks they deserve a 40 pay increase over four years. It is unrealistic and ridiculous. Look, if you believe in the market, then what the auto manufacturers are going to have to figure out, you're seeing this, by the way, on the Hollywood side too. The prediction is that your streamer prices are going to go up. Okay, then consumers are going to have to start to make choices. If they cannot afford seven streamers, which I may have subscribed to at least five at this point, consumers will make choices. And it's the same thing with cars. If the opportunity is to have a lower price car, then the auto manufacturers are going to figure that out. The, the, that's the beauty of the market is they're going to figure that out. Anyway, folks, check out the show on the government shutdown. It's going to be some fascinating stuff. And maybe we'll get Paul back somewhere, sometime. I don't know. He's off somewhere. Perhaps. You well, Paul. All right. For Alicia, I'm Matt. We'll see you next time.